issue-by-issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast. I am your host, Nick Byers, and we're on episode two. That's progress. Some shows don't even make it to episode one, and we've made it to episode two. So, if everybody pats yourselves on the back, I'll do that for myself here in the studio. Uh, You do it wherever you are with your earbuds in or your headphones on or in your car, something like that. Um, But everybody, good job. But enough self-congratulations. We've still got work to do, a lot of work to do, because we are only into 1939. Um, So let's set the scene. The year is 1939. The month is January. We last left off with Action Comics number 8 and Detective Comics number 23. So, let's set the scene. Things in the real world have progressed. Uh, so, in the, in the world as a whole, uh, from January 1939 to April 1939, which is what this episode is going to cover, the rights of Jews continue to be decimated by Hitler uh, and his Third Reich Nazi party um, in Germany. Uh, he does his 1939 Reichstag speech, um, which is a very famous speech that he gave at the Reichstag in Berlin, I believe. Uh, the Spanish Civil War continues to rage. It officially ends on April 1st, 1939, with Franco and, and the national uh, nationalist faction succeed and, and, and take over, and the, the Second Spanish Republic falls, and the Spanish state is established. Uh, and then a lot of bad stuff happens in Spain, but I'm sure we'll talk about that in later episodes. Uh, there's a new pope. All the Catholics out there rejoice as Pope Pius the Eleventh is succeeded with, you guessed it, Pope Pius the Twelfth. I do find popes um, to not be the most uh, creative naming. Obviously, I know you have to pick a saint's name. I was raised Catholic, but uh, to pick the name of the guy in front of you, or behind you, the guy who just died, it's kind of lame. Neville Chamberlain, as Prime Minister of Britain, flips his opinion on appeasement. He suddenly thinks that, hey, this Hitler guy is not great. Uh, Maybe we shouldn't have just let him do whatever he wanted uh, for so many years. Yeah, Neville, I think you were right. Uh, History has yet to say, but I'm leaning towards, yeah, you you were right, that Hitler was a bad guy. The planning for the German invasion of Poland is began uh, behind, you know, closed doors, obviously, in in the German uh, government, uh, Nazi government, which will officially kick off World War II uh, with the uh, invasion of Warsaw, I believe. I'm not a World War II expert, but I'm doing my best out here. Uh, But now let's get to the United States, which is where, obviously, DC Comics is and and where its uh, large portion of its readership was. Uh, Hewlett-Packard, HP, is founded. Uh, They're a computer company, if you are unaware. Um, This is what is considered the birth of Silicon Valley, which is cool. I I, I did not know that um, before doing research for this episode, that... Silicon Valley is considered to have been founded in about 1939. Obviously, Silicon Valley is not like an official thing. It's just a cultural designation. But it's cool that it's you know been around that long. And now it's mostly just a cesspool. But yeah. Uh, the first NCAA basketball championship is won by the University of Oregon. Uh, Billie Holiday, famous singer, releases Strange Fruit, which is considered the first anti-lynching song in um, history. Uh, she later has some troubles with the FBI not liking her, a large part because of her, you know, anti-lynching and civil rights sort of beliefs. Uh, and the 1939 New York World's Fair opens, which will have some 
kind of bearing on maybe our final issue in this episode. No spoilers. Um, but that's, that's, that's the scene when these specific comics are being released. So now let's move on to the actual issues for this episode. So our first issue for this episode is going to be Action Comics number 9, picking off where we left off with the Action Comics line uh, last episode. Uh, this one was released January 3rd, 1939, with a cover date of February 1939. No debuts in either the Superman story or the Zatara story. No rookie laps this time. Uh, so let's get into the Superman story. Uh, this is actually our first bit that I've noticed of a bit of continuity um, in the comics issues. So Superman in Action Comics number 8, if you remember... Uh, was helping out this group of you know young troublemaking boys uh, who were kind of double crossed by the person you know fencing their goods for them, and kind of their ringleader. Uh, and in the end, Superman destroyed the slums uh, in order for them to for the government to build new ones, uh, so that people living in poverty weren't living in the slums because he doesn't understand how poverty works or crime. Or anything so but I went to a, I went to a whole big long rant in the first episode about that so I won't rehash it here but he destroyed the slums Superman did which is a crime it's a you know public destruction of public property or not public property private property I guess so in this issue uh, action comics number nine there's continuity from one issue to the next because Superman's wanted by the police the chief of police Talks to the press, puts out a basically like a, we want Superman. He basically puts out a kind of, you know, all points bulletin, a bolo, but for the general public that Superman is wanted for this crime of destroying this neighborhood. And as a part of that, he's brought in a, a ringer of sorts, a detective Captain Riley. Uh, he's fam- He's a famous, um, they call him a famous dick, which is an old-timey word for detective, um, from Chicago. He is known for having a perfect 100% record. He uh, has been sent after uh, 800 men, and he's got all 800 of, him, uh, of them, so he is assured that he will be able to catch Superman. Clark Kent is in this sort of press squabble, and he makes a little comment under his uh, breath that that Captain Riley is a conceited windbag. And so then, you know, Captain Riley grabs him by his collar, and and uh, Clark Kent, of course, goes into his cowardly sort of persona and says, "Oh, don't don't hit me! I was just joking." Captain Riley yells at him and says that he'll capture Superman within two days. So that's they put a time crunch on it. He's gonna catch him. In two days. Then we get back to the Daily Star, because it is still the Daily Star at this point. Clark, of course, talks to Lois. Lois is, doesn't beat around the bush here. She says, she says straight up, Clark Kent, I despise you. Uh, she really does not like him at all. Clark is t- you know, is confused by this, uh, because he, he thinks she's been, been, been so friendly lately. Um, and he was you know, getting hope. Uh, and, and Lois says, I absolutely loathe you. Loathe. Ugh. You contemptible weakling, don't you dare even to talk to me anymore. God, that is, whew, that is rough. That is a, that is a not great work environment. But then again, don't hit on your coworkers. 
Okay, they're just there to do their job. And I mean, you know, if you're friends and it's outside of work and, you know, their feelings are there, sure. But don't, not in the workplace. Come on, people. Be better than this. It's 1939, obviously. Completely, things like consent and stuff weren't well understood at that point. So, but still, don't. We can learn things from these past ones. Don't do that. It's not cool. Clark is sure that, that there's someone else in Lois's life, that there's someone that she loves. Um, Lois denies it. Clark says that he's noticed her when she's alone, being a real creep, uh, that she uh, gets this kind of faraway tender look when she's thinking of him. Uh, we, of course, know who he is, but for the point of the story, Clark does not. Lois is mad that um, Clark is snooping on her, obviously, because it's an invasion of privacy. That's also not cool. Don't spy on people. Uh, and then she just gushes about how this guy is just the greatest. He's glorious. He's grand. He's terrific. He's everything you're not, Clark. He's brave. He's bold. He's handsome. Superb. It's Superman. Obviously, she she announces to Clark that it's Superman. And Clark is like, what? Superman? Which, like, how... I know he's putting on a bit. So, like, maybe he's just a good actor. It does say in the caption, slowly, as though stunned. And so he's, you know, shocked. It's like, oh, Superman. And she's like, yeah, no, go away. Uh, she has a little bit of, maybe she was too harsh, you know, thought bubble. And then Clark goes into an empty office, and he's so distraught. He's so sad. But wait, no, he's not. He's laughing. Um, and he says, another moment, I couldn't have suppressed it any longer. He's just laughing. Just laughing, which I don't know if that means, like, haha, she doesn't know that I'm Lois, or haha, she thinks Superman likes her. Uh, uh, I, think it's, I think it's the first one. I think he's laughing because she doesn't know that he's also Superman. Inside joke, laughing all by yourself in an office. That's cool. Not weird at all, Clark. But he's an alien, so we'll cut him some slack. Uh, so back at police headquarters, we get back to uh, the police, the chief of police, and Detective Captain Riley. And basically, it, the scene whittles down to Captain Riley said uh, calls in to uh, the Daily Star and and wants to put an ad in the paper saying that there's going to be a five thousand dollar reward. Um, who to the person causing the capture and arrest of Superman. So they don't have to capture him. They just need to have information that leads to his capture. So that's, you know, easy for the regular person to do. And basically, Captain Riley, you know, the chief of police is not happy because he doesn't want to give out $5,000. But Captain Riley assures him he does it all the time. He puts out a large reward um, to get information, and then he just ends up capturing him himself. So it's underhanded. It's not cool. But there's a wrinkle in this in this instance. A, it's Superman, and B, in the next scene, well, next two scenes. First, Lois sees that the $5,000 reward for Superman capture is in the Daily Star, and uh, Mortimer Snoop, which is like great name, for his profession, which is an amateur detective, uh, so that's cool. Dick Snoop is what I guess he would be called, which is unfortunate. Uh, he sees the $5,000 reward as well, and he's like, all right, what could I do with $5,000? Who knows? In that instant, that same instance that all that is happening, uh, a man at a mental institution uh, is going to jump out the window and kill himself, commit suicide. It's called in. The police um, call it in. Somehow they hear it at the Daily Star, which I never understand how they're getting this um, stuff. Like, do they have a police scanner? That could be. 
It doesn't say. It's just it looks like a radio, but it definitely could be a police scanner, which I don't even know if they had back in the day. I don't know. Um, but I guess if you have a radio tuned to the right frequency, that would just be that would just be basically you'd get everything. Who knows? It's old-timey technology. No one knows how it works. Clark wants to cover it, of course, um, because he's going to save the man from jumping to his death, even though if he wants to die, he shouldn't be stopped. Sometimes that's some people's only way out. You know what? It's their choice. It's their body. Clark changes into Superman. He leaps into action. Uh, Mortimer Snoop sees him. He sees him take off his you know, Clark Kent disguise and bound away as Superman. So Snoop runs to a phone, because obviously cell phones didn't exist. He calls into Captain Riley. He tells him about it. Riley shows up. Uh, he says he saw a man remove some clothes over there and then jump off into the sky. And it's obviously Superman, because how many other dudes do that? Uh, there's no identification in the clothes. Captain Riley basically says, thanks, I'll, I'll take it from here. And Mortimer Snoop's like, nah, you're not going to nab him. I'm going to nab him because I saw him first. Uh, so he's trying to jip him out of the reward money like he's done before. Uh, so they both, this is kind of comical, they both like, have an inner monologue sort of thing. Uh, so they, they both they both decide to wait, um, you know, because... If they're both here, then they both have a chance of capturing Superman when he comes back for his clothes. Uh, Superman saves the guy from falling. He kind of, at the last second, before the guy's head just collides with the pavement, he, you know, swoops in, uh, breaks the road, breaks the sidewalk, the street, uh, with his landing, uh, but catches him. So that's good. The guy's not dead. And maybe, you know... With some good treatment, he won't want to die anymore, and he'll want to, you know, live a good, fulfilling life. It's 1939, so I'm assuming mental facilities aren't great. Uh, psychiatric facilities are not great, but uh, yeah, maybe we can hope. We can hope. And you know what? He never shows up again, likely because he has no name. So you know what? In canon, he gets the help he needs. He he, you know gets on the proper medication or some good talk therapy, and he lives a long, fulfilling life after that. That's great. And we can say that. So Superman, you know, does his duty, and he's going back to get his clothes when he spies the two detectives down there waiting for him. And he's like, oh, oh, looks like uh, my big mouth persecutor, Detective Captain Riley, is down there, you know, waiting for him. So he's going to keep a lookout and just kind of wait, and maybe something will be entertaining. Because, you know, that's Superman. He's such a prankster. You know, he loves a good laugh. He loves a good joke and a good jape. So we get to the internal monologue of both Captain Riley and Detective uh, or Mortimer Snoop. And they both think basically the same plan. They say, well, I'm going to pretend to leave, uh, and then, you know, he'll leave too because it's been so long since Superman's, you know, come back. And then when he's gone, I will... I'll come back, and then I'll be the only one waiting for Superman. I can capture him, get at the reward all myself. Um, they both do this. They then turn the corner to come back. They notice each other. They get into a fight, uh, and while they're kind of scuffling, uh, Superman, you know, quickly comes in, grabs his clothes, and leaves again. And then they're mad at each other because you know they each blame each other for let Superman getting away. After this, uh, we see Mortimer Snoop, and it turns out that he grabbed something out of the clothes before. Uh, Captain Riley got there, and it's a note that says, must remember to attend the Duncan reception tonight. Uh, so he knows now that whoever Superman is, he'll be at this reception. 
we then, you know, smash cut to the night of the reception, and Mortimer Snoop is at the uh, Duncan home, uh, but is uh, rebuffed, obviously, because he has no invitation. So he goes to the phone. He uh, calls the Daily Star and wants to speak to the society editor. That's, that would be Lois, apparently, because she, um, she is the one who answers. Oh, no, no, it's not her. Sorry, that's my B, because she says she isn't in, um, but wants to take a message. Uh, Snoop lays out the whole thing. Superman's going to be at this reception. I want to capture him. You guys can have the story first. Lois, of course, is like, oh, no, Superman. I love him, and I want to do a big smooch. Uh, so she you know, rushes there. She throws her coat on. She changes dresses because her dress is now yellow when it was red. Uh, could be a coloring issue, but uh, whatever. So he, you know, Mortimer Snoop and her walk up to the door, and it's like he's like, "Here you go. She'll, she'll, you know, she'll, she'll vouch for me to, you know, let me in." Uh, the guy, the guard at the door is like, "Do you know this person?" And she's like, "Nope," and just walks on in. And so Snoop is foiled again from getting into the party. Uh, he then calls Riley because uh, Riley is obviously you know, a big gruff guy and, and police. So he could you know, maybe kind of strong arm his way in. Uh, Lois is there. She meets Clark. She warns Clark that like, Hey, Superman's going to be here. And there's like guys looking for him. She tells Clark to be on like the lookout or whatever, um, to find him and warn him. And Clark says, well, how do I even know what he looks like? And why should I help you? Cause you said a bunch of mean things to me today. Captain Riley and Snoop barge in, um, and they're like, there's like two dozen dudes here that any one of them could be Superman because apparently no one knows how to recognize faces and Clark's classes are really, really good. Um, so they have the idea to just search everybody, uh, cause presumably his costume will just be right underneath his clothes. Uh, so they begin the search. So they begin the search, uh, while Riley is doing is searching the men, uh, Snoop walks up and says, hey, you know, I'll get that reward, right? And Captain Riley's like, no, because uh, I'm going to capture Superman, so I'm going to get the reward. And Snoop's like, well, can I get at least like a bit of it because I helped out? He's like, nah, screw you. Clark doesn't really say anything. Um, he tries to, you know, just not be noticeable. But Captain Riley signals him out or singles him out and says, you're next. He calls him palsy. They're not pals. They're not friends. Don't be so familiar. Mortimer Snoop uh, turns off the lights. And so the room is pitch black. And then Riley turns him back on. And there's Superman there um, in all of his regalia. Uh, Snoop and Riley both kind of try to tackle Superman. They, of course, they just knock their heads against his rock-hard body. And Superman, you know, grabs his clothes and leaves. The, the, the headline for the next morning reads, 99% Riley, because he was originally called 100% Riley because of his 100% track record. Uh, so 99% Riley leaves town in hurry, attempt to capture Superman, a failure. Uh, how did they not know that Clark was also gone? They don't, they say, don't worry your pretty little head about that. No one noticed. He's Clark Kent. And he may be, he may look just like Superman and uh, stuff, but he's not Superman. He's a weakling. So it got dark. He got scared and he ran away. That's how it happened. That's how it happened. And that's the end of the issue. Uh, the Superman issue in Action Comics number nine. So moving on to Zatara, the master magician in Action Comics number nine. 
This one is called uh, Zatara, the Master Magician and the Mad Llama. L-A-M-A, not the animal, which is kind of a bummer to me. Um, something that I have been forgetting to do uh, when talking about these different stories, because it's, it's, it's tricky with these early kind of anthology comics, because in modern day comics, the writer and the, you know, artist, uh, the penciler and the colorist and, and the inker and all that kind of stuff, they're all on the front page. They're all in, in like the front page or inside the front cover or something. These are all different. Uh, so one issue doesn't have the same artist um, or, or writer. So I'm, I, I need to be better about these each individual stories because I want to give props to these writers and artists for the work that they did, this, the formative work that they did in, in the medium. So Zatara and, and the Mad Llama was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Fred B. Gardner, which he, they've been the team on every single previous Zatara comic. So it's not like I missed out on anything there. So, but basically this is the Tara story opens with um, the Mad Llama in a monastery. It reminds me a lot of Nanda Parbat, but that's probably just because this monastery is set in Tibet and Nanda Parbat is, I believe, in Tibet as well. So the architecture and stuff is similar. Or this could be Nanda Parbat. We don't know. We could pretend it is. Should we? Yeah, let's. Uh, so the greatest mental wizard of all Tibet is Gerbil. That's his name. Uh, J-E-R-B-E-L. Uh, and he's, he, he studies all the time to be the, you know, master of all men. Um, and, he's, and he says to his, his, to his friend, he says, or I guess, I guess his servant or underling, says the time has come to conquer this globe for Tibet has the, oh, for Tibet. And then there should be some punctuation, but there's not. Um, it's a new sentence. It says, has the English major arrived? So they're waiting for some English major. Um, and he says, he brings news from India. Let me know when he comes, when he arrives. Uh, miles from Tibet, um, there's a plane. And inside that plane is who other, is, sorry, is none other than Zatara, the master magician. He's not wearing a hat. Not wearing his customary top hat, but he is reading an issue of Action Comics. Whoa, that's meta. And sitting behind him is Tong. Of course, Tong is not allowed to wear a shirt because of racism. So suddenly the plane starts to crash. But what's weird is that no one in the plane is freaking out. Uh, Zatara senses an, e an alien force, and an alien in the sense means outside force. Um, a strange, different force. Uh, he climbs in the cockpit, lands the plane. He gets Tong out, he wakes him up. Uh, everybody else in the plane is still asleep. Zatara says he must make contact with the will that is causing all this. And he sees with his magic eyes the monastery on, on, on the mountain that's nearby, north of their position. And he knows that there's evil at work there. So they fly kind of sillily. They look very silly while they're floating along. Uh, and they land at the monastery. They are ushered in, and uh, Zatara is mistaken for this major. Major Lee is his name. And so Zatara plays along, and he discovers that the, the mad llama, Gerbil, is planning to take over the world. And he's like, oh, well, why do, you need, why do you need my help? And he's like, oh, well, I need, you know, I need underlings. I need generals to 
to help me out. Um, and you're supposed to be the most experienced hypnotist in all of the world. So I want you to be a part of it. Uh, so Zatara continues to play along and they are brought to a dinner later on in the evening. And who's there? Tigress. She's not wearing her striped sweater. She's wearing an evening dress because she's a lady. Oh, I should say. I should say. Sorry, this is important. Zatara does a spell to make it so that Tigris, Tigris can't recognize him in Tong because obviously they've kind of battled, you know, probably like probably almost eight times now. I know that every episode doesn't have Tigris, or every episode, every story, Zatara's story hasn't had Tigris in it, but she's been in a lot, so they are well acquainted. Uh, so he does a spell, but what really bugs me about this is that Zatara does a spell, but he doesn't do it by speaking backwards, which is like his whole shtick, like he did it in, in previous issues, but he just says like a, he says Hagameth, which like I guess is kind of like a magic-y sounding word, but it's lame. He should say the words backwards, like he does. But uh, So they have dinner. And at the dinner, they go around the table and all of the different people who are brought here to be the Mad Llama's generals, they talk about how all of their powers are and stuff. Uh, like, uh, there's a, a guy from India and he has a, he can call on phantom armies to wipe out India's fighting men. Uh, there's a Frenchman who will use kind of imaginary poison. He, all he says is, by poisonous fumes, which will be matters of the imagination so like so like i guess he's going to just like trick everybody in paris and be like he there's poison or something i don't know it's not well thought out but then they move on to zatara and so zatara grows to be a giant he's he's in charge of of kind of bending england and north america or the u.s to a north america probably let's see no united states sorry England and the United States to kind of get them to fall in line. So he turns himself into a giant and is like, oh, I'll squish you. But the the the, la, the llama is like, well, I don't know if you're such a good servant, Major. You seem to be... You hypnotized me, too, to make it seem like you were huge. Um, so he's like, ooh, can't have a, I can't have an underling that's more powerful than me. So they're, um, Zatara and Tong are kidnapped. Or I guess they're seized by the the llama's men um and they were taken to a dungeon he uses some shadow magic to make his shadow kind of corporeal uh and he you know finds tong in another cell and um he tells him to break his bonds because tong can't have any ideas for himself um because he's not white the 30s everyone because uh, like he wouldn't have thought to to force his bonds before so uh, Tong does, and he beats up a guard, and he comes in and frees Zatara. Zatara then reveals himself to Tigris. Uh, Tigris then says, like, oh, you have to save me. The ger gerbil, gerbil llama has gone insane. And Zatara's like, okay, I will. We'll work together this time. And then they go to Gerbil's treasure room, and they steal his treasure. Well, they don't steal his treasure, sorry. They destroy his treasure. And again... And again, Zatara does a spell, but it's not backwards. It's he says in Egoth Jurga Lorsa Wrath. Wrath. It's lame. Say it backwards. Okay. Uh, enough. Enough about this. 
so they destroy his fortune, and then they're continuing their, to make their way through the monastery, and they are they are noticed by the Frenchman, uh, Monsieur Henri, uh, and he says the traitor's loose, and then Zatara turns turns him. He says, "Turn, turn into the thing you are," and uh, so Henri turns into a foul worm. So that's cool. Uh, he turns him into a worm. They continue uh, to the to the chambers of the Mad Llama. They're stopped by some warriors. Zatara turns them into pictures on the wall. They're then stopped by a, a willpower force field, I guess. Uh, then they use the power of holding hands uh, to break through it. Uh, then then they finally make it to the Llama's uh, chambers. And then they have a struggle of wills where like a lightning bolt goes between them. But the gerbil loses. He says, mercy. Zatara, you know, says, to save the world, one man must die. But the purifying, by the purifying fire, that man, gerbil, is you. So he kills the mad llama, which, like, uh, that's a little bit harsh. Isn't there some way you could have just taken away his mental powers? But I guess if you want to just murk the dude, that's that's cool, too. Uh, And that's the end. Tigress didn't do any crimes, so Zatara doesn't, you know, try to capture or anything even though she's done a ton of crime previously he's just like and eh, we'll forget about that crime we we're true we have a truce so i mean it's a little bit i don't know she's still a criminal uh so that is the end of or all that is the end of the stories in in action comics number nine that we'll be covering uh next up on our list is uh, detective comics number 24 uh, which was released January 17th, 1939, uh, with a cover date of February 1939. Uh, no debuts in this one either. This issue just has a Crimson Avenger story for our purposes. Obviously, it has other stories, but they don't matter to the DC uh, multiverse continuity. Uh, so this is a Crimson Avenger story uh, issue only. Uh, and it's titled uh, Tony Sparta and the River Gang. Uh, it didn't have that. Uh, name originally um it is named that later in an anthology of earlier crimson avenger stories this issue or this uh story of crimson avenger is written and drawn by jim g chambers i believe he is the one who did all of the previous crimson avengers as well so uh kudos to him on that this story involves the um Crimson Avenger tracking down a gang of racketeers, and these racketeers um, murder people that don't pay them. So they go to people for protection money. If the people don't pay, they get killed, which I guess that's a good motivator. But really cuts down on the old client base. So in his search for these racketeers, uh, it leads him, the Crimson Avenger, Travis Lee, to, to Tony Sparta who's the head of uh, uh, the River Gang, a gang who presumably works mostly on the river. Uh, he is unable to get information from Sparta. They fight. Um, he, he, he dons his Lee Travis you know, disguise, or basically just his regular one, to try to get information out of him, but uh, he is unable to, so he has to go as the Crimson Avenger, look at Sparta's boat, uh, to see if there's any evidence. Uh, he finds the boat, uh, and he kind of sneaks aboard. Uh, and while he's on board, 
the boat leaves the dock to, to travel on the river. So he's now on a moving boat, which isn't great. He kind of overhears a conversation between Tony Sparta and Commissioner Benson, uh, a, a city official, a commissioner of some kind. So there's some, you know, underhanded politician dealing in this. Uh, the Crimson Avenger is knocked out because he gets knocked out all the time. Tony Sparta and the commissioners, you know, are, he's brought to them and they're like, throw him overboard. But before they can throw him overboard, a police boat starts chasing them. So now they're in a chase. And while all of the gang members are worried and focused on that, the Crimson Avenger wakes up, knocks out his guard, uh, you know, uses his gas gun to kind of, I guess, get people to do what he wants. And he kind of stops the boat and the police catch up. Crimson Avenger jumps in to the water to escape. Uh, He swims underwater holding his breath, you know, because he's probably trained for this. He's essentially, you know, Batman before Batman. So he's trained to hold his breath and swim in a tuxedo, which is what he's wearing. Uh, He gets out and Wing, you know, has a blanket for him. Uh, this is the first issue that I've noticed that Wing has said anything. Uh, he he speaks uh, for the most part normally, but often he'll have the sort of racist depiction of, of an Asian accent. Uh, you know, those short clip sentences. If you've, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. If you've watched anything, you know, earlier in, in, in around this time in history. Um, the accent but that's the end so he got him the the commissioner was caught and the gang was caught by the police and the crimson avenger does it again he did it good for him so that is detective comics number 24 next we're moving on to uh action comics number 10 uh action comics number 10 was released on february 7th 1939 with a cover date of march 1939 uh no uh, debuts in this issue in either the katana, katana that's a way later uh, zatara ants and superman stories so um no no need to do any rookie laps this for this issue either uh the superman story is of course written by the the duo uh jerry siegel and joe schuster who have written all the superman stories they were working a lot back then they do uh, i know of at least one other uh, series that they do for DC Comics at this time, which is called Spy. Um, I'm assuming it's about a spy. I haven't read it because I don't need to or want to. So this issue is convoluted. I'll just say that. The story is convoluted. Um, but so basically the, the issue starts off and Superman, or sorry, not Superman, Clark Kent is informed that there is an escaped prisoner from a uh, chain gang uh, hiding out on 18 Hogan Street. Uh, Clark goes there. He gets the story that uh, from the prisoner that escaped that um, the chain gangs, the members of the chain gang are treated terribly and uh, they're abused. And that is why he escaped. Uh, that's why he uh, ran away. Uh, but he does this off the record, or not off the record, deep background on background. Uh, so that means he can't reveal his identity. It's a part of the journalist's code. Uh, so Clark writes the story about the shocking cruelties. And in the next scene, uh, we are shown the superintendent of the of the chain gang 
kind of, I guess, company, the the prison system or whatever. And he's whipping a guy uh, for claiming that he's too sick to work. Uh, and he wants him to howl louder and louder because he is a sadist. I think that's right. Sadist or masochist? Sadist, I think, is the one who likes causing pain. And then he's uh, another worker comes over and informs him that the governor is here. He tells the man, hide this guy that I just whipped mercilessly from the governor so that he doesn't see the cruelties that we're doing here. It's like, oh, good idea. Don't want to do that. Uh, The governor shows him this story about the cruelties uh, that the escaped prisoner told Clark Kent. Um, The superintendent takes the governor on a, you know, kind of a tour and has the men tell the governor how great it actually is here. Um, The men don't say anything. One of them wants to speak up, but another one tells him not to because otherwise you're basically going to be tortured, probably to death. And, you know, the superintendent kind of says, oh, look, they're speechless. They don't have anything to say because it's just so great to be on a chain gang. The other worker from earlier informs the superintendent that the prisoner that he whipped died. The superintendent says, I don't care. I have, I'm focused on this story in the newspaper that I have to deal with. And he, he knows who the escaped prisoner is. It's Walter Crane. So he's, he's going on a trip, uh, the superintendent is, to, it just says to North. So I'm assuming to Metropolis, even though it's not called that yet. Uh, he comes to the Daily Star... And he wants to talk to the reporter who did the story. Clark at first says, oh, I can't tell you who it is. I, and I can't tell you where it is. And the superintendent's well, like, I know who it is. It's Walter Crane. Now tell me where he is. And Clark is at first, he's like, I, uh, I can't. It's, uh, it's, you know, integrity. And the superintendent kind of threatens him with like being an accessory to you know aiding and abetting an escaped fugitive clark breaks down uh in accordance with his attitude of cowardliness the the editor uh can't remember his name shoot it was something boring and not important so his editor is like kent oh my gosh he's taken aback by him you know giving out where the you know his source was living uh, we then cut to the superintendent. He, you know, finds Walter Crane at the. He well, he takes he takes Clark Kent with him to show him where it is, and the superintendent, you know, kind of beats up the beats up Walter Crane and then recaptures him. And then back at the offices, Clark is shunned. Little little blonde haired Jimmy Olsen, who isn't Jimmy Olsen at this point, says, "Is if he isn't fired, I'll quit." We don't know what Jimmy's. I think he's just like a newsroom boy. It's like, hey Jimmy, you're not that important. Like if you quit, I don't think anyone's gonna make a big stink over it. But hey, good job. You you showed them. Clark uh, is then seen talking to Lois. She, he's like, "You'll understand." Even though last episode you said last episode, I did it again. Last issue you said that. You hate me, basically, and you love Superman, and I'm not Superman. Uh, and he's like, you'll, you'll understand that I had to, otherwise he was going to, you know. And Lois is like, how dare you even speak to me after what you've done, you loathsome wretch. She says, get away, get away from me. And she does an exclamation point at the end to show that she is serious. Clint then goes into his, you know, editor-in-chief's office, 
And he's like, his editor-in-chief is like, what are you doing back? I ought to, you know, straight to the moon. Clark then says he can explain, uh, and he does. Basically, he says he did it as sort of a, um, how do I phrase it? It's, it was a trap, basically. He, see, this is why this is so convoluted. He gave up the name, he gave up Walter Crane to the superintendent, Wyman, basically so that he'll go back to the place, back to Quarrytown chain gang, convinced that he can get away with all this brutality and stuff. And then he'll get even worse. And then Clark's going to go there and get photographs and stuff and uh, testimony and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, okay, do that. Why couldn't he have just done that without giving up Walter Crane? Like he knew where the he knew where the chain gang was. He knew that bad stuff was happening there. He could have gone there just without being, I guess, a real jerk to Walter Crane, who just really just wanted to not be abused anymore. But he sent him back to his abuser. I don't get it. I, I think it's really, it's a really, really, and it makes the story overly long. I, I, I don't think it's by page length. It's any longer than any of the past Superman stories, but it just feels longer in a bad way. Okay. So he convinces editor in chief that that's what he's going to do. He turns into Superman and he runs with a camera to Corey town chain gang. So Superman, after getting to Corey town kind of, begins his plan uh, with step one, which is to get thrown into Corytown, chain gang. So he disguises himself in one of his disguises and deliberately crashes into the superintendent's car. And then, you know, the superintendent says, oh, it was your fault. You ran You ran into me. And then Superman in his disguise, he says, my fault. And he does a punch, punches the superintendent, gets arrested, quickly gets thrown into Corytown, chain gang, um, really, really fast. It's like, wow, the the wheels of justice move quickly when you want them to, and you're in charge of writing the story. So he gets to Corey Town, chain gang, and Superintendent Wyman says he's got a special treat in store for him. So that's good. It's probably cookies, maybe, maybe, um, maybe brownies or cake. Who knows? Superintendent Wyman, he's a big baker. So uh, just kidding. He's put into the stocks. And basically, it's like you're gonna sit here until you know your back and arms ache, and you're just you're writhing and pleading for mercy. Uh, of course, you know hours pass, and he's Superman, so that doesn't happen. And so <laughs> Wyman, being frustrated, says, "Fine, put him to work." And so he's put to work smashing stones, and he's he's given this big giant pile of rocks to smash. He says, "Smash all these in a." In a half hour, he's like, all right. And so then Superman whistles a working song, and then five minutes later, he's got them all smashed. Then he's asked to do it again um, with a bigger pile of rocks, and he does it again in five minutes. And then later, he's eating, and he's like, oh, this food is gross. And then everybody goes to sleep, uh, and Superman breaks out. Uh, he, he leaves to change into his Superman costume, I guess because you got to have Superman in a Superman costume. Uh, and he takes pictures of things. Takes pictures of the stocks and, and all this, all the terrible... And the sweat box and all the terrible things. And at that moment, he sees 
none other than Walter Crane trying to escape again. He climbs over the fence. Walter Crane does. Um, he gets stuck and kind of falls. Then he goes into kind of um, a forest and gets trapped in quicksand. Superman saves him, and Superman fights off the bloodhounds. And then he brings Crane back. He brings Crane back to the chain gang. Then he has to... He, he's, he waits in a tree to see Crane being whipped by the superintendent so he can get photographs of it. And then he gets thrown in... Well, then Crane gets thrown into the sweat box. Superman then kind of, you know, shoves the superintendent's face into the dirt, removes Crane from the sweat box, gets the governor, brings the governor back kind of a la uh, in an homage to the first story where he grabbed the governor out of his... Oh, no, no, he went to the governor's house. Never mind, he didn't take the governor. Uh, and he shows the governor all these terrible things. Uh, and he has Wy- he has Superintendent Wyman trapped in the sweatbox and has him confess. And then, you know, Clark Kent writes a follow-up story. Uh, and it's all great for everybody, except for, I guess, Walter Crane, who was forced back into prison. Oh, and you know what? He could have been in prison for a good reason. He could be a murderer. But we're not given that information. We're just given that he's a guy who doesn't want to be abused in the prison system, which is already an abusive system. Modern-day slavery... So, so yeah, good job, Superman. You put a man back in prison so that he could get whipped and thrown into a really hot box. Great. Good job. Superman's a a hero, everybody. (sighs) Yeah. No. No. Sometimes Superman can be a big jerk. It's true. I'm, you know what? I'm not sorry about it. I'll stand, I'll die on that hill. Sometimes Superman's a big jerk. Uh, so the, uh. The Zatara story in Action Comics number 10 is written by the same duo of Gardner F. Fox and, and Fred B. Gardner, Gardner. And this one involves uh, Zatara doing some work for the Explore, Explorers Club in Shanghai because Zatara is one world traveler. He's always on the move, always in different countries, doing different stuff, doing silly, magical stuff. Uh, and he is sent on a treasure hunt for Genghis Khan's treasure. He begins his search, but he's followed by none other than Tigress. What, what? Uh, their truce is clearly over because she's following him in order to kind of hang on his coattails to get to the treasure. Uh, he, you know, fights some uh, a, 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 Mo- a Mongolian tribe t- that's guarding the treasure uh, in order to get to it. And uh, he eventually gets to a, a cave where he meets a female genie who tells him that he must pass three challenges to earn the treasure. He says, no problemo, and passes the first two challenges easily. They were pretty lame. It was like, get over this gorge and stuff like that. Um, And then the last challenge is that he has to kill her to release her to, you know, uh, the afterlife or whatever genies wish for. He says, no, I can't kill. Now, I bet you're all thinking, wait a minute. Uh, Zatara just did a really big murder last issue. You're right, he did. Um, so I do find this kind of statement of like, you know, uh, gentility, pacifism on Zatara's part 
uh, to be a little bit empty because he did just kill a guy last episode. And he also turned a guy into a worm, which, like, basically that means that that guy's going to die in, like, a week tops, you know. I don't know how long worms. Worms actually might live a long time. But still, he's a worm that's basically close to murder. Uh, So he refuses. But then who steps in? Who appears out of nowhere to help him out in his time of non-murdering need? Tigress. And she kills him. Not kills him. Kills her, the genie. Sorry. Then they share the treasure. Cool. Fine. The genie turns into a large diamond. And Zatara keeps that. And and the Explorers Club gets the treasure or whatever. Good job, Zatara. Um, I guess Tigress didn't do any crimes in this one. So technically he doesn't have to, you know, send her off to jail. Um, but yeah. So that's Zatara's story. Um, they're they're getting more magical, which I am very very happy about because Zatara should deal with magic, um, not the normal street things or overthrowing, or stopping a rebel civil war or whatever in India like he did in like Action Comics number eight I think. Still, um, okay. So moving on to Detective Comics number twenty five which was uh, released on February 21st, 1939, with a cover date of March 1939. No debuts in this one either. Just a just a Crimson Avenger story, as they all have been, uh, but won't be for very much longer. And this Crimson Avenger story is called The Airline Insurance Murders, and it is also written and uh, drawn by Jim G. Chambers, as are the previous ones. And this Crimson Avenger story involves a series of strange airline accidents. And the story starts out with Lee Travis, editor, owner of the Globe Leader, talking to a young man who uh, is looking for work. And uh, Lee Travis sends him to H.A. Powers, who is a rubber magnate, who has been advertising for young men to go to a South American plant because rubber trees, uh, this is before... Uh, synthetic rubber uh, really changed the whole game in, in terms of rubber. So he sends them to him. And we then cut to H.A. Powers talking to his assistant, um, uh, who, who's brought him a young man who, who is looking to you know, fill out, f- apply for the job uh, in the advertisement. He tells him, you're hired after only uh, a few minutes of conversation um, and you know, puts him, books him on a flight uh, and tells him to take the, the 12 o'clock air transport bus. Um, so the, the young man gets on the bus, but on the way to the airport, it is struck by a truck, uh, and the young men are killed uh, in the accident. And this is where um, I get a little bit confused, probably because things have changed a lot in terms of airfare and insurance and things like that now than they were from 1939 so lee travis feels responsible for those two men being killed in that bus crash because he sent him to ha powers and if they wouldn't have gone there blah blah blah. you understand and so the guy he's talking to says this is sure costing the airline insurance companies a lot of dough and Lee Travis has a eureka moment. He's like, insurance, that it, that's it. It's only a quarter for $5,000 worth of coverage. So what I am, I guess I'm trying to parse together is if for some reason you can't make your flight due to uh, circumstances, you get a payout. 
I just, that doesn't really make any sense to me, but I guess, I guess things were different back then. If anybody on, if anybody out there knows like how that works or worked, I guess, let me know. Cause it's, conf it confuses me. Like it confused me this whole story. Like later parts of the story make sense. This one doesn't. So like they didn't make the flight at all. They got hit by a bus or like they, their bus got hit by a truck. They didn't make the flight at all. They died. So because they weren't able to make the flight, they, the insurance payout, I don't know, whatever, not important to the story, even though it actually is. So another plane suddenly blows up and that's suspicious. Lee Travis is suspicious of that. We then cut to a scene of uh, Powers talking to, I'm assuming his banker who says he's going to have to foreclose on his plant if he doesn't pay you know, back his loans or his, his notes. Uh, so he pays, he pays off like $26,000 of it to the banker to get him off his back for a little bit. Uh, and then he says, call up the paper and, and ask them why we haven't gotten more replies on our ads. Lee Travis then finds out that H.A. Powers is basically bankrupt. Um, but he, but obviously since he's in charge of the globe leader, he knows that he's putting out ads all the time, hiring new people. And he's like, that's suspicious. So he dons the Crimson Avenger costume and goes to kind of snoop around Powers' house. He overhears uh, Powers hiring a young man um, to to work at his South American plant. He puts he says he's got he'll book him on the night plane to South America, uh, but first he wants him to stop back here at the house to pick up an important satchel. So the Crimson Avenger searches his desk and finds a timing device, uh, and he kind of puts it all together. And so Travis sets up a kind of, I guess, little trap, um, a little setup. So the next day, he, as Lee Travis, kind of tries to sneak onto the, the Powers estate. He gets caught because he wants to get caught. Um, he says he was trying to get a picture, and the guard throws him into a cellar. And this part is kind of funny, this next part. He says... Gosh, it's good I had my lineman's phone now to find the trunk line, which is a very, very old-timey uh, phrase, um, which is basically he's going to try to find the phone line of the house in the wall and uh, clip this phone to it so that he can make calls. Very old-timey. They don't do that that way anymore, I don't think. Or maybe they do. I bet linemen still have phones that they hook up. Yeah, probably. Uh, he calls Wing. Uh, tells him where he is, tells him to buy a ticket for Powers on the night train to South America, uh, and then tells him to pick him up at 9.30. The next scene is um, Travis just, like, opening a door and saying, hey, Wing, I'm over here. Like, so he could have just escaped the whole time. He was just waiting in that cellar for fun. And the answer is yes, because he wanted to be there uh, so that he could pop out as the Crimson Avenger and kidnap Powers using his gas gun, uh, so he knocks him out, kind of dumps him at the side of the plane. And the, the kind of the people who work there are just like, oh, this is, this is H.A. Powers. He's got a ticket for this flight. And he's unconscious. And they're like, let's just put him in his seat. Uh, and he wakes up on the plane. The guy he hired is there. And he's like, hey, I got that bag you wanted. And uh, Powers is like, oh, gosh, no. And he throws it out the window because it was a bomb, obviously. Timing device, bomb. And then, and then Powers confesses to all of the accidents that have been happening lately have been him, you know, collecting the insurance money. 
Travis is like, another another great day solving crime. I don't know. He doesn't have a catchphrase or anything. So, but that's the end of that story. It's a like it's good if I could understand. Like I understand the gist of airline insurance of what they mean, but I don't understand it fully. But that's a lot of people he killed. My goodness, the body count. Because like it's not just the like one person that he's killing. He's killing entire plane loads of people. Jeez, he's going to. Uh, be in prison for his entire life or dead or dead okay next up is action comics number 11 released march 7th 1939 with a cover date of april 1939 uh no debuts in this one either for either superman or zatara um so let's just get into it superman's story uh starts off with a man committing suicide it's a seems to be an issue that they, I guess, like to talk about in Superman's early stories. Just gotta catch dudes jumping out of windows, trying to kill themselves. It turns out that uh, this man is jumping out uh, of a window to kill himself because uh, a broker's office sold him bad stock, black gold oil stock. Uh, Superman investigates uh, and uh, buys all the bad stock. He says, I want it all. He then goes to the oil well and finds out that they haven't even begun drilling, uh, and it's been months, um, just because the stock was selling so well, um, and they didn't think that they'd actually need to back it up with any actual oil, which is why the stock market is stupid, and it's imaginary. It's an imaginary place for rich people to uh, play with non-rich people's money, and just for the thrill, um, without providing anything for society. Um, Don't at me. Do not come at me with your pro-stock market takes. I I don't want to hear them. Uh, It's dumb. So Superman, or I guess Clark, puts on his uh, costume of Superman, and he drills deep into the ground in the middle of the night to discover a huge oil well. The news breaks, and the broker's office is ecstatic. I guess not the news breaks. The broker's office finds out about the, the oil well. They now want to buy back all the stock before the stockholders learn um, about the well and its value, which is insider trading, and that is illegal. Uh, They discover that uh, the stockholders have already sold uh, to a mystery man. Uh, It was Clark in disguise. Uh, Clark refuses to sell for the cheap price that they're offering. Uh, And in order order to get the stock back without having to kind of fork over a ton of money, they send some hitman after to kill Clark. Superman, of course, being the nosy little nosy Parker that he is, was following the brokers basically the whole time uh, and heard the whole thing. This is actually the first introduction of Superman's x-ray vision and his super hearing. So his power set is becoming more more well-rounded. He, he's, he's now not just a strong guy who can run fast. He's also got other stuff. Uh, so the hitman kidnap uh, and attempt to kill Clark, obviously. They, of course, fail to do so. Clark then sells the stock for $1 million, and then Superman destroys the oil well. So yeah, that one, hey, uh, these early Superman stories might be kind of silly, but this one I like, um, because he kind of takes down um, people involved with the stock market, who I hate. So good job, Superman. Good job. Uh, it's You did kind of personally enrich yourself uh, there, so... I guess, you know, not completely innocent, but still, at the end of the day, you did the, I guess, right thing. 
Uh, so moving on to the Zatara story in this issue. Um, this one is called The Sea Ghost uh, and was written, of course, by Gardner F. Fox and Fred B. Gardner. Oh, I'll, God, I, God, I keep forgetting. It's I got to get into a better habit. The It was, of course, of course, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster who wrote the Superman story. So Gardner F. Fox and Fred B. Gardner wrote this Zatara story. So Zatara, again world traveler he is now sailing to san francisco aboard an ocean liner and when he boards the ship to begin his journey he comments on having seen a guy before um that's a guy that's walking around uh, on b deck uh the captain uh tells him that the man he's describing has been dead for three years spooky he says he committed suicide by jumping off of B-Deck, the deck that they're on. So, ghost aboard. So that's spooky already. After leaving this conversation, Zatara bumps into a guy, uh, and, and the man slips a note into his pocket, and it says, it says be, in my, be in room H17 at 9.30 tonight. So, um, Zatara sneaks in using his sort of shadowy self um, and he overhears them talking about plans um, that people are after and saying that the people after the plans won't be hesitant to kill them. So Zatara's, you know, in a room saying, oh, so my young friends need my assistance. And then a man, a bald man with a gun pointed at Zatara says, I think you will stay here for the evening, monsieur. And Zatara says, well, would you, will you please step aside? And then he turns the guy into a door. Uh, so that's cool. So after leaving the door, he says, he says, I, I think I'll lock you to be sure you're here when, when I return. Like, like he, the door would walk off if it wasn't locked. So that's funny. Uh, Zatara then turns himself into a mouse in order to kind of g- explore the ship unnoticed. He scares a young woman named Miss Kelly. Uh, Zatara then turns himself into um, air to get, go through the keyhole of H-17. And inside, he finds that the men have been knocked out by carbon monoxide. And then he destroys one wall of the cabin. Uh, Not destroys, sorry. He disappears it for the ocean breeze to get the carbon monoxide out of there. The men wake up. Uh, They explain that they're government agents and they have these plans and someone's after them. And then Zatara changes the plans into a plant so that, you know, Someone won't find them because why would you be looking for plans? This is a plant. He again doesn't speak backwards to do his spell. He says angro gin, um, which sounds like a type of gin. Uh, refreshing botanical angro gin. Yep. And he says, I'm glad I could be of help. Shakes their hands and leaves. He goes back to his cabin and finds a lady in there. Miss Kelly, the one who got scared by the mouse. Uh, she tells him that she's heard of him, and she wants to see his magic powers at work in the dancing room. Uh, she talks him up to all the people and says he's going to give them a little exhibit. He pulls a magic wand out of thin air and a cape, and then he takes them all on a magic carpet ride on this big old carpet. And everyone's like, whoa, impossible. This man's a Marvel. No, silly. He's a DC Comics character, not a Marvel Comics character. He's silly, Billy. Uh, this, the ghost shows up and says, am I welcome on this magic carpet ride? And Zatara's like, well, this wasn't planned. 
and his powers don't work against the ghost. Uh, the ghost says, before I disappear, Zatara, leave the plans on the canal in Panama alone. Um, oh, so they must be sailing from New York to San Francisco because there's be no other reason to go through Panama if you were sailing from the Pacific side of San Francisco. Later that night, Zatara is talking with Tong and he's just, he's really confused about why they, his powers didn't work. On the ghost, um, there's a knock on his door, you know, at dawn and it's one of the government agents and he says that they got his partner um he gives the man alcohol because that's how they solved everything he seals the man inside for his safety by making the cabin door disappear and and changing it into a wall uh he goes back to the government agent's room finds that the plant is gone so that that means the plans are gone uh he he finds the other agent dead as well in the room but Zatara being super smart and magical, that the guy wasn't stabbed at all. Um, he was hypnotized into thinking that he was stabbed. But Zatara convinced him with his magical powers that he wasn't stabbed. So there you have it, guys. If you are ever stabbed, just believe that you weren't. And magic will unstab you. So you can take that to the bank. And yourself to a hospital if you've been stabbed. So yeah, he explains basically that the ghost made him think that he was stabbed. Um, he goes back to his room. The other the other government agent is knocked out. Zatara uses his ghost like shadow powers to find find the plant, uh, and he says whoever has the plans doesn't suspect that fern for what it is. He finds out it's F twelve that the the plant is in. So then Zatara goes to the purser's office. I don't know what a purser is, but it's, I'm assuming it's just like a ship secretary or whatever. Um, a receptionist. Front desk. Uh, and so he tells him who is occupying F-12, just completely um, ignoring their right to privacy and stuff. Things have really changed since 1939. Zatara then goes to room F-12. Gets inside with magic, one would presume. Turns the fern into a pocket watch and puts it in his pocket. An hour later, he's talking to Tong, telling him that we're they're up against a really, really clever foe. And so he turns Tong into a mouse. No one knows why. And he watches the sunset over the Pacific uh, when Miss Kelly approaches. Uh, I promised the people another demonstration of your magical powers. They won't disappoint like last time, huh? And he's like, oh, if the sea ghost doesn't appear. And she's like, oh, can't you can't you banish the ghost? And he's like, no, I can't. They're useless against the ghost, but not against the creator of the ghost. So he goes back, he goes and does his performance, and in the middle, the sea ghost appears. He's doing, the ghost appears. Zatara says, you forgot to escape your keepers this time, ghost. And the audience sees two Satans beside the ghost, two different Satans. I just always thought that there was just the one Satan, but maybe one is like Satan's cousin. Like, um, maybe Satan's like a last name. And so we've got Satan. We've got Lucifer Satan. And we've got his cousin Jimmy Satan, um, who's visiting from New Jersey. And then the specter vanishes. Uh, Zatara banishes the ghost to the sea from whence it came, saying Agra Zo, or Zo, not backwards talk. So the performance ends, uh, and Zatara is looking around for Miss Kelly, and she's gone. And then he heads back to his stateroom. He says, I think I shall wait here by my stateroom for developments. And inside of his stateroom, Miss Kelly is threatening the two government agents with a knife um, and says, Hey, give me back that fern. 
because I knew it was the plans because I'm a magician as well. Tong, as a mouse, creeps in. She gets scared because she's a lady. Oh, and, he, and then Satara comes in and says something really sexist and says, your true feminine spirit is more afraid of a mouse than anything else. Cool. He found out that F12 was her stateroom. Uh, she signs a confession. Um, and then for the rest of the ship journey, he turns her into a statue until the, she can be taken into custody. And that's the end. That was fine. It was a fine story. Uh, a little bit, you know, a little bit of that that good old 1939 sexism that we've all grown to love um, or despise, if you're me. But other than that, good story. Like, lots of, you know, use of magic and and all the things that make, that set Zatara apart from people like Superman or the Crimson Avenger or stuff like that. So that's good. Um, give that one, give that a thumbs up. Uh, next up is... Detective Comics number 26, uh, which was released on March 21st, 1939, with a cover date of April 1939. Um, This Crimson Avenger story is called The Phony Crimson Avenger, Uh, and that's exactly what it has to deal with. Uh, Oh, sorry, I should say it is also written and drawn, as all former Crimson Avenger stories are, by Jim G. Chambers. So a gang of jewel thieves rob a jewelry store. Um, One of the gang is disguised as the Crimson Avenger. He murders a cop to frame the Crimson Avenger and divert attention from the gang. So, smart. The real Crimson Avenger tracks Lee Travis, tracks them down, and doing a bunch of fun hijinks of being like, I'm your buddy, the guy in charge, because I'm dressed like the Crimson Avenger. Uh, he, he kind of investigates and finds clues that lead him to the rest of the gang. He apprehends the gang boss, Gip Morgan, and turns the gang over to the police, uh, which clears his name. I'm not going to dive, you know, go any deeper into the story because it's really, really, really confusing. And um, basically, that's, that's all the important bits of it. Because it was, like, reading it, I was just, like, so confused. Because they make so many, like leaps from one thing to the other that you're just supposed to i guess infer and the inferring maybe my inferring ability is not up to snuff or i I think it is but maybe not but like i was so lost some of the times um and these stories are not very difficult I, i think it's just the lack of space like they only get you know like six pages to do this crimson avenger story so they have to draw only what is necessary and only and keep the words in the speech bubbles kind of to a minimum and I think that that really, really is detrimental to the story. But this is the beginning of comics. No one has any idea if they're going to last at this point. So moving on. Um, we are moving on to Action Comics number 12, which was released on April 4th, 1939, with a cover date of May 1939. Um, this is one of the silliest Superman stories that I have read so far. This has Superman dealing with reckless drivers, and he's tired of them. He's tired with their reckless driving, their hit and runs, and all this kind of stuff. He's tired of it. He's putting his foot down. He puts out a radio broadcast saying, I'm going to take down every single reckless driver that there is. If you're a reckless driver, I'm coming for you, and so you better watch out. So Superman starts out by busting up a car lot that has dangerous vehicles in it, okay? He scares a drunk driver. Uh, haunts a hit and run driver by you know running so fast and jumping into the back of the like pretending to get hit by a car then chasing the car down 
and jumping into the back seat and pretending to be a ghost. The police, of course, are coming after him because he is being a menace, um, even though the people he's being a menace to are also breaking the law. Uh, Superman destroys an auto plant where unsafe cars are built. He cracks down on police bribery for getting out of, like, tickets and stuff. Uh, He makes roads safer by, you know, kind of removing all these tight turns. Like, he basically built, like, he drills a tunnel through a mountain to make it a straight straight shot. Even though straight shots are also super dangerous, people like driving max speed. But, you know, I mean, Superman doesn't know a lot of things, and urban planning is definitely not one of them. Um, Or civil engineering, I guess, deals with the construction of roads. Uh, Finally, he hijacks the mayor who is driving recklessly and shows the politician the victims of traffic accidents in the morgue. Um, He's like, look at this dead body. He got hit by a car. Uh, So the mayor is basically, he basically takes the mayor through a scared straight program. He's like, this, you could do this if you're driving recklessly. You could kill a guy. Uh, So the mayor vows to enforce the traffic laws better. So yeah, probably the most insane story for Superman to be involved in. The, The man can punch through a mountain he can jump an entire building this is so ground level and so like unimportant because guess what people are still gonna drive recklessly you didn't stop anything just like just like you didn't solve poverty by by destroying the slums but okay whatever it's the 30s this is what superman does he you know they don't call him the champion of the oppressed for no reason so, moving on to the Zatara story in Action Comics number 12. It's written by Gardner F. Fox and, and Fred B. Gardner. Zatara gets the cover treatment for this issue of Action Comics. This is the first time he's been on there. And, and it's kind of something fun that the Action Comics number 12 does is, is along with the, the statement saying, you know, in this issue and every issue, there's Superman. They also say another thrilling and unusual adventure of Zatara. So those two have clearly come to the, the top, have kind of floated to the top of the crop of stories that come out of action comics as being the ones that people like to read the most, which is very telling because they are, I believe, two of the only characters from this era of action comics that are still technically in DC continuity. So that's cool. So Zatara in this one, uh, this one gets really, 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 really uh, this one gets really out there, um, which is good for a Zatara story. So Zatara, um, he has a friend named Professor Suswill, um, and Professor Suswill has created a doorway into another dimension. And he asks Zatara to answer, enter the fourth dimension and explore, because Zatara is so powerful and stuff. Zatara enters and explores and soon becomes aware of an ongoing war between uh, the people of Thrule, T-H-R-U-L-E, and the people of Aaron, A-R-R-E-N, which are two rival nations of the fourth dimension. Uh, They both suspect Zatara of being a spy working for the other uh, and try to kill him. Zatara evades the soldiers and forces the two nations to declare peace um, using magic. Uh, And when the leader of Thrule is found dead, Zatara helps choose a new leader, Duaro, D-U-O-R-O. And then he redubs the United Kingdoms as Duomal, D-U-O-M-A-L, for returning to Earth, which I think is a tad presumptuous on his part, right? Could you just imagine if an alien came here, made like made two nations declare peace, chose a new leader, put made the two countries become one country, even though they don't want to, not necessarily, and then leave? Like, like did... did 
uh, it just it's just it's really weird. It's really it's buck wild is what it is for Satara to do those things. But he's a white guy, so they can do no wrong at this time or any time. It's true. It's not true. It's not true. They make white men have done terrible, terrible things uh, throughout history. Um, caused a lot of problems. So, uh, moving on, moving on from that that really, really crazy story uh, to uh, Detective Comics number twenty-seven. Do you guys know what it is? Do you know what time it is? It's Batman time. That's right. Detective Comics number twenty-seven released. April 18th, 1939, with a cover date of May 1939. And two, we've got two rookie laps in this issue of Detective Comics. The first being one of my favorite characters of all time, Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman. And yes, I am basic. I love Batman. And I'm, I'm unashamed to say it. And also making his debut... Uh, Commissioner Gordon, a uh, good friend to Batman, um, and in this story, a good friend to Bruce Wayne. So, uh, this first issue of Batman was written in the original one. So this is a big controversy that was uh, for a long time with Batman and, and his creation and stuff like that. So for the longest time, Bob Kane is the only person who got credit for Batman. But as we know now, and and people did at the time obviously bill finger had a big part in creating batman and a lot of the things about batman that have endured to this day so i'm giving credit to bill finger even though in these early issues well early issues like issues up until like the 2000s in all these issues it's credited with you know batman being created by just bob kane but so this issue of batman is written by bob kane and bill finger as well uh, and it's called The Case of the Chemical Syndicate. So it starts off with um, Batman. Sorry, no, it doesn't. It starts off with Bruce Wayne uh, wearing a yellow checkered suit, which is like a really uh, just a power move. Just a yellow checkered suit. Wow, very powerful. Talking to Commissioner Gordon, who is smoking a, um, a big cigar. Uh, and they're having a conversation. They're talking about this strange fellow called the Batman with a hyphen in the middle. Um, and it puzzles him. Uh, and Commissioner Gordon gets a call. And there's a crime scene. Someone's been murdered. Old Lambert has been murdered at his mansion. A rich guy got murdered. Oh, no. We all cry. Commissioner Gordon says, do you want to come along? Bruce completely breaking police protocol. And Bruce says, sure, I'd love to come break protocol. So they speed towards the, you know, they, they drive to the, the crime scene and they're investigating and they talk to young Lambert, who is the old Lambert's son. And he's, it, it seems pretty cut and dry that he did it, that he killed his dad. But he says, I didn't do it. I swear. He says he came in and saw his father. His father was lying on the floor with a knife in him. And he distinctly remembers seeing someone jumping out of a window um, and the safe was open. And as his father dies, he says, contract, contract. And so that's why it seems like he killed him, because he pulled the knife out of his body, which you shouldn't do. And then he tells him about his dad's former business partners, his three former business partners, Stephen Crane, Paul Rogers, and Alfred Stryker with a Y. Um, and just at that moment, coincidentally enough, a man is on the phone named Steve Crane. What? We just heard about him. Uh, who wants to speak to Old Lambert. But guess what? Old Lambert's dead. And... 
after he heard that, he says he wants to speak to the commissioner. So the commissioner answers and he says, Old Lambert called him yesterday and told him that he received an anonymous threat on his life. And today he received the same threat. And he's afraid, which he should be. Um, and so they rush over to Stephen Crane's house. Uh, and he is jumped by a man in a striped suit with a gun. The guy shoots him, uh, steals a paper out of his safe, and leaves. And he, he jumps out of a window uh, and is pulled up to the roof by his partner. And the two men are like, yeah, we did it. But then they turn around, and who do they see? The Batman, with a hyphen in the middle. Uh, and now let's just talk a second about uh, the Batman and his costume at this point. We, people who are aware of Batman and, and stuff like that, currently um, know that Batman with his cowl, it's got the ears pointing up, like basically straight up from the top of his head. And, and you know, the typical gray, mostly bodysuit with, you know, sometimes underwear on the outside, sometimes not. Utility belt, cape, big old calf, calf high boots. Looks very, very, very fancy. This Batman, this first iteration of Batman, he's got blue gloves on his... A lot of that stuff is the same. The gray bodysuit, the utility belt, the underwear on the outside, the calf-eye boots. The cape is kind of less of a flow down and more of like a flow out. It looks like it has some structure to it, maybe some underwire, like a bra. Uh, but his cowl, his cowl is the goofiest uh, looking thing. They went very literal when um, they went for bat. Um, because his, the bat ears are coming they come out straight from his head like regular ears so like if you look at a bat that's what they look like they don't come straight up and down from you know the top of his kind of the sides of his head they come out like at a diagonal and it looks i'm gonna say he looks goofy he looks goofy (laughs) i'm just looking at it it's like that's so goofy you might as well not even had them like but i guess he has to look like a bat so to be batman otherwise he's just like you know, mentally unhinged man or something like that. Uh, so he he beats up the, the guys that were stealing and he gets the paper back. And meanwhile, the commissioner has gotten to Stephen Crane's house. And the butler comes out and says, Stephen, Mr. Crane's been murdered. It's horrible. So that's two of the four partners are dead. And Batman reads the paper and then gets a grim smile, which is creepy. And then he speeds his red car, just a regular red car, no bat theme to this car yet, uh, to an unknown destination. And meanwhile, Rogers, who has learned of Lambert's death, has um, gone to his partner's, or his former partner's house, Alfred Stryker's house. And he talks to Stryker's butler, and the butler knocks him out with a like a little billy club. And then he carries him down, uh, carries uh, Rogers down to the basement of the laboratory. And Stryker is going to put him into a gas chamber and kill him. But before that can happen, Batman jumps in through an open transom of a basement. Um, He grabs a wrench and jumps into the gas chamber himself as the lid comes down. And he plugs the the gas chamber hole and then he breaks the glass with a wrench. And then he he fights uh, Alfred Stryker's uh, assistant, beats him up real good. And then he kind of lays it all out for Rogers, what's, that striker was the one who killed all their other former partners because he didn't want to pay for owning the business, buying, buying them out of the business uh, because he's the only one who knew about, like the four of them were the only ones who knew about the contract saying, pay us this much a year and you'll buy the company from us. And so if he got the contracts and killed them all, no one would know and he would just own the company and wouldn't have to pay any of his money. 
But after he lays that all out, uh, Stryker kind of like with a burst of strength, like rips out of Batman's grasp, grabs a gun, tries to shoot him. Batman punches him. He breaks through a railing and falls into an acid tank and dies. So Batman's a murderer. Batman's a murderer. Um, all of his high and mighty being like, I don't kill. It's like, don't you remember that time you punched a guy in, into an acid tank? A little, little selective uh, amnesia on that one. But uh, the next day, young Bruce Wayne is visiting the commissioner's house again. Um, and he just finished telling him about the latest exploits of the Batman. And Bruce is like, oh, that's a great, that's a great fairy tale, commissioner, you, you crazy man. And then he leaves. And, and the commissioner says, Bruce Wayne is a nice young chap, but he certainly must lead a boring life. Seems disinterested in everything. And then so Bruce Wayne returns home to his room. Uh, and a little later, the door opens and reveals its occupant. If the commissioner could see his young friend now, he'd be amazed to learn that he is the Batman. Whoa, right? Mind-blowing. Bruce Wayne is Batman. Wow, great first story. It's very Batman-esque. There's detectiving, there's punching dudes, there's, you know, death traps, there's an acid tank. I hope I hope Alfred Stryker doesn't come back as the Joker. You know, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but there's another story in Detective Comics number 27, and that would be Crimson Avenger. The Batman, before he was Batman. Uh, and this Crimson Avenger story was written by Jim G. Chambers and drawn by him as well. It's called Murder on the Oce- Oceanic Line Docks. Um, and then the Crimson Inve- Investigator... Ugh, sorry. The Crimson Avenger is investigating a murder... Uh, of a nightclub owner and a photographer. Um, And it leads him to the notorious gambler, Mike Moran, who killed the nightclub owner for gambling debts. Um, And Moran gets the drop on the Crimson, but fails to notice that the phone is off the hook, allowing the operator to hear his confession. Moran is caught, and the Crimson Avenger escapes. The reason the photographer was killed was because he had a photograph, like a, a camera, that was taking pictures, and he saw, or in his camera took pictures of the murder uh, so that's why he was killed his car was run off the road and then killed there um another classic another classic crimson avenger story and then our final issue of this episode is the new york world's fair comics number one now you might be asking me now nick what is this this is an action comics number 13 this is not detective comics number 28 you're right but this is important because it introduces or it's the first published appearance of another character in DC Comics continuity, and that is Sandman, Wesley Dodds. Uh, not Sandman, like the, you know, uh, Dream of the Endless, um, which that show is pretty good, right? Yeah, I liked it. I haven't read this, the graphic novel. Uh, eventually we'll get to it, because I'm reading, I'm reading imprints too, anything that has to do with the DC stuff, so... Um, but this was released April 30th, 1939. It has a cover date of just 1939 because the World's Fair takes place over a long period of time. And making his rookie lap, just leaving sand everywhere, is the Sandman, Wesley Dodds. Now, this is his first published appearance, but his first canonical appearance will be a little bit later in Adventure Comics number 40. Because of how long it takes comics to come out um, after they're written, it's likely that Adventure Comics number 40 was written first. But this one just happened to be published first because it's for an event, so they had to get it out at a certain time. So, we're going to start with the Superman story. 
Uh, then we'll move on to Sandman and then Zatara because those are all three that are in this iteration. Batman is too new. Batman only came out about 12 days before this one was released. So no one knew if he was going to be popular enough. He shows up in uh, New York World's Fair Comics number two. So I, I believe him and Robin do. Uh, so that's a little bit later. That's, I think, in 1940. So, so uh, Superman... Uh, and Lois are sent on assignment to cover the World's Fair. Superman, Clark Kent, uh, he wanted time off, uh, and his chief was like, no, 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 you can't, because I'm sending you on assignment to the World's Fair. And Superman's like, what a coincidence. That's where I wanted to go. On their way there, uh, Superman does heroic things like stopping two trains from colliding, because uh, they, the they were on the same track, and that's not good. Superman and or Clark Kent and Lois they get there and Clark overhears some guys talking some construction workers talking and saying like oh this infantile paralysis exhibit isn't going to be up for the World's Fair because construction was too slow and so in the middle of the night Superman goes and completes the construction of this infantile paralysis exhibit because it's an important topic that people need to know about I've never heard of it before so it must be a 1939 thing that is has been solved by this point. Lois is kidnapped by Nick Stone. What a great first name. Uh, wanted criminal. Not a great guy. Um, because she know, she recognized who he was. And Stone's gang is going to steal priceless jewels on display at the fair. Uh, Superman stops them, obviously. Uh, and saves Lois. And Lois is all like smitten. She's like, oh, give me a kiss. And Superman... Flies away, giving some excuse. Being like, oh, I'm sorry, I have to go get a corn dog. Um, it's the World's Fair, uh, and I want a corn dog, maybe a funnel cake. And off he goes. Uh, and and then Clark Kent and Lois, they, uh, they have a great time at the fair. Uh, Sandman, uh, Wesley Dodds, has invented a new ray gun uh, for the government. He's a, he's a manufacturer, I think he's a steel manufacturing magnate. And Dodds and his associate go to meet with government agents at the World's Fair to hand over the plans for the ray gun. Just from the jump, Dodds is suspicious. And he's correct to be, because the plans are stolen, the lights go out, and then when the lights turn back on, the, the plans are gone. Dodds dons his Sandman attire and investigates. He finds out that the guy he met with wasn't a government agent, and that he has a yacht that is docked at a nearby harbor or marina. Um, he sneaks aboard, um, shooting guys with his Sandman sleep gun, very similar to Crimson Avenger, and eavesdrop on a conversation, and it finds out that his associate was the one who double-crossed him and um, was going to sell the plans. Um, Sandman knocks them all out using his you know, sleep gun, leaves a light dusting of sand, like which is his calling card, Apparently, we, we haven't known that because we haven't read, haven't read his first story. And then he turns the, uh, the crooks into the, um, into the authorities. And uh, everyone's like, that's Sandman. He's a pretty cool guy. His costume's pretty cool, actually. He's, like, he's wearing a gas mask, um, and he's wearing like a long coat. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. He's a cool character. He's, he gets involved with the Justice Society of America. All of these, all of these, Earth 2, which is a thing that we won't deal with until much, 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 much later, are Justice Society kind of people. Uh, next, oh wait, sorry, and yeah, next is uh, our Zatara story, and Zatara 
uh, is uh, on a quest to bring the necklace of T. Lo from Mongolia to the New York World's Fair because he is a traveling guy. Even in a World's Fair special comic book, he's got to be traveling. He's got to be in other countries because he is a man of the world. Along the way, he is um, attempted to be assassinated. <laughs> he is attempted to be assassinated. People attempt to assassinate him um, for the necklace. The, he finds out that the attacks are perpetrated by a, a rival collector who wants the necklace for himself. And Zatara, of course, survives um, the threats and with, uh, with magic and uh, gets to New York with the necklace and it's put on display and everybody is happy. Um, and these are just some funny, like some fun kind of low stakes stories that, you know, to get people excited about the World's Fair because it's a, it's a big deal. Because at the time, you know, TV was not really a thing um, and radio kind of gave you the news. But, you know, it, it's it, this is a, a rare opportunity for people, if they can get to New York, to experience you know, other cultures and, and stuff like that, be more worldly. And uh, this was a way to get them excited about it because like, hey, my favorite my favorite superheroes and stuff are, are there. So it's like, that's cool. And it's fun. And all the, are these stories in canon? Maybe, maybe not. We can pretend they are. It doesn't hurt anything if they're not. Uh, so yeah, so, and that is that is our last issue for, for the episode. Uh, I decided instead of doing like a six months sort of thing, I decided to do maybe around... Nine to ten issues, um, because after that it gets a little bit tedious. Um, it gets a little bit tedious for for me as a speaker and for you as a listener to be like, okay, now this is issue number issue fifteen of this episode, you know. And it maybe even it gets tedious by the end of nine or ten. But as as you know, characters get their own comic books and stuff. It'll be easier because. It'll just be one character per issue of comic book, and it'll be it'll be it'll streamline once we get past all these big anthology books uh, with multiple different stories in them. But I hope you liked it. Hope you liked this episode. Hope hope you're sticking with it. We're we're making progress really really slowly, but that's that's the name of the game. Uh, if if it was easy, everybody would do it. But we're the we're the brave few who are plodding through the past uh, to just be so well-read in DC Comics that our heads explode, um, even reading all of these goofy early stories. So, as always, as always, it's the second episode, but as things will always be, you can find the show on Twitter if if it's not banned for whatever reason. Um, if Elon decides that it's just like podcast, uh, Twitter's gone, you know, or, or something. Um, you can find that at Issue Issue Podcast on Twitter and that same hashtag on uh, Instagram. The hashtag, that same username on Instagram. And on Instagram is where we'll all post the primo panels from this week that I found. Um, that Zatara panel with him reading Action Comics is there. There's some good Superman ones. I'll probably grab one from somewhere in Batman. Who knows? Uh, maybe of that sick yellow suit. Who knows? But check them out there. As always, I'm Nick Byers. Uh, thank you for traveling with me on my time traveling gondola through the river of the past, issue by issue into the future of DC Comics. Uh, and I will talk to you all next time. Later. <laughs>